Is it time to walk your dog, but you just don't feel like yourself these days? Are you a woman over the age of 35 and are having an array of baffling symptoms? Well, check out Morphis. It's a company started by two women who are in perimenopause and menopause that just want to help other women in this phase of life. They have a podcast, Menopause Reimagined, and a comprehensive website, wearemorphis.com, with amazing products that provide relief. If you're struggling with any of the over 102 possible symptoms, Check them out. You are not alone in this. Visit wearemorphous.com. That's W-E-A-R-E-M-O-R-P-H-U-S.com. Does your dog do? Well, today our fantastic guest will be answering this question. Her name is Trer Scott. Today we're talking about her book, Forever Home, The Inspiring Tales of Rescue Dogs. She has several books. She's fantastic, and I'm so thrilled to have her on. So, Trer, tell us something that your dog does. It could be one thing, two things. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Let's see. Uh, One of my dogs is obsessed with seeking out and eating used tissues. (laughs) Always fun. And my daughter has allergies, so there are always plenty of those around. Um, Let's see. Another one? Yeah. She also, let's see, does does anybody else's dog, um, you know, bark and and turn in circus dog circles when they want to eat? That's a cute one. You know what's funny, actually, is Blue does that on the way when we're bringing his food to where he eats. Aww. He'll do little spins. Little circles because he's yeah. so excited. Yeah, because he's so excited. <laughs> oh, I absolutely love that. The question that I begin the show with, other than the does your dog do, is when did your love of dogs begin? I can't remember not having a love of dogs. Um, I you know, was one of those kids that was petitioning their their parents for a puppy, you know, at a very young age. And I I don't, I don't think we were ever without a dog. Um, but I think I got, you know, my first, my dog when I was six. And, um, uh, I, I think the obsession really grew from that. I've, but I don't think I ever thought that it would become a focus of my career. And that's really just been a wonderful journey. Yeah, well, before we jump into the book, talk to us a little bit about that, because your photography is is incredible, and it wasn't originally dogs, so tell us what you no, were No, it wasn't. Um, I mean, I think when I, when I was, um, you know, when I was training as a photographer, when I was coming up, um, you know, through college and everything, it, the... First of all, I didn't go to art school, which is 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 an eternal regret of mine. But um, so I didn't have that art school experience. But I, and I was sort of um, veering towards that world um, as I was graduating from college with a with a degree in mass communication, which has actually been very helpful in my career. But you know, back then we were really told that animals were not serious subjects. That if you wanted to be a real artist, if you wanted to be taken seriously, you did not focus on animals. Um, unless they're just symbols, you know, in, in the work. And so, um, you know, I don't think I even ever considered, um, having my photography focus on animals or dogs because I just thought I'd be immediately dismissed. And, and really, you know, the, the kind of things that existed were just kittens in baskets. And so, you know, through, through a whole series of, um, I guess, fortuitous events, you know, I, I started photographing shelter dogs, um, at a local um, municipal shelter and 
as time wore on and, and I had hundreds and hundreds of these files, I started seeing, wow, you know what? These are, these are portraits. These are real portraits of a living being um, with its own soul and its own character. And these need to be seen. And um, that was when I started putting together Shelter Dogs, which was my first book that came out in 2006. And that really launched, um, you know, the rest of my career. And I realized that it, it was um, a bit of a, a passion of mine to create portraits, true portraits of animals, um, to give them that respect and dignity and, and really, I mean, kind of humanity in a way that we give human subjects. Yeah, I, it seems so odd to me that idea in that world of like, oh, no, no, not animals. No, they were always uh, viewed as, you know, silly, silly, cute subjects. Um, and I think that's changed a lot. Um, I, I'd like to think that I've been part of that change. Um, but I, I think it's I think I think that diminutive view has definitely um, lightened up a bit. Oh, good. Because you capture the animal souls. I mean, these photos are incredible. And again, we're today we're focusing on Forever Home, the inspiring tales of rescue dogs. And I love in the introduction, you tell us a little bit about your dog, Rosie, and you talk about how she was born on a local farm and she has a bed and she's loved it every day of her life. And then you write, quote, most dogs aren't so lucky. And this book focuses on some of those dogs. And you go on to say, why do we love to tell these stories of heartbreak and second chances? I believe that it's because they continue to remind us of the resilience of dogs, of their ability to love despite abuse, abandonment, and betrayal. In short, these stories educate and inspire us to do better. I'm very proud of that introduction, actually. And it was written written in a very impassioned moment, I think, of of being... um, completely immersed in all of these stories and, and just, you know, my just deep, deep love for dogs. So, um, they are remarkably resilient and forgiving and we don't deserve them to be honest. (laughs) They are, they're way too good for us. I love this too. In the introduction, you write quote, I want this to be a book of truth, but also of contradictions because I believe that is the only way we might glimpse the whole truth. Can you expand on that for us? I I think that um, in the animal welfare world, the animal rescue world, um, there are a lot of things that are very taboo. Um, I was hoping in a small way to sort of talk about some of those things. Um, and, and I think things are changing. Opinions are changing. But, um, you know, there's been so, I mean, since I've been involved in this world for 15, 20 years, most of my life, um, you know, breeders have really been vilified. Uh, responsible breeders have really been vilified. All breeders have been vilified. I don't think that's what we should do. I don't think it's helpful. I think if we love dogs, I think if we want the continued future of of dogs, we have to acknowledge and make room for responsible breeders. But that's key right there. This is not backyard breeders. This is not puppy mills. This is these are not commercial breeders. These are you know. And that's a tough thing, I think, for a lot of people, including myself, that was really hard for me to come to terms with, for people who are dealing with just the the numbers in shelters, you know, just the overflow, the constant overflow of unwanted animals. It's really hard, I think, to, to begin to reconcile that responsible breeders are needed, but they are, because not everybody is going to adopt a dog. And the vast majority of the dogs in shelters are not coming from responsible breeders. They are coming from backyard breeders and they're coming from, you know, all kinds of other sources. So it, 
that's a tough one. I think it really sticks, you know, it's tough for people to, to make that leap, but I did, um, over the years of making these books and working with breeders and realizing, um, that they are necessary. I think it's also been something that a lot of us have struggled with is, um, behavioral euthanasia. You know, the fact that sometimes you just can't save a dog and it, and it, and it's horribly sad and everybody is devastated by it, but it happens, you know? Um, and there's just a lot of things like that, that, that I think, um, are hard for people to accept and hard to talk about. And I get it. I totally get it. Um, because I've, you know, been in this world for a long time, but, um, things like, like really vilifying anyone who surrenders an animal, we've got to stop doing that because, there are so many situations um, where, I mean, they really are doing the right thing or the best that they can do for that dog, you know, and there are just, sometimes it's not that case. Sometimes people really suck, but it doesn't do any good to vilify them. You know, it doesn't help the dog. It doesn't help anything. And it also doesn't, it makes people feel, I think that they can't use that as an option. And I mean, to be honest with you, in, in many cases, and certainly not all, but in many cases, it is safer and better for a dog to be brought to a shelter than, you know, I mean, I've seen so many things, you know, dogs tied out in the woods, dogs just dropped off and abandoned, dogs given to people who are abusive or don't take care of them. Those things are worse, you know? Right. Um, so, yeah, but those are hard. I think those are hard truths for us to to accept because we just, we see the immense fallout of this, you know, and it, it's heartbreaking. It is, you know, on the last episode, uh, I, I won't retell the story. You'll have to go and listen. It was with the Anne Marie Mogg, M-A-G-G, a dog like me. I shared a story of getting two dog brothers and realizing they weren't good for each other and it, it just wasn't working. And so we rehomed one. And I had so much shame around that, right. even though three different trainers said, you got to separate these two. They're, it's not, they're like one eight legged dog. But I had this embarrassment, like, I can't believe I did that. Absolutely. And so many people feel that way, like really wonderful, responsible, loving people who are truly doing the best thing for the dog. So much shame around it not working out, acknowledging that it's not going to work out and finding like the best situation for that dog is is. I think fulfilling your responsibility to that animal. So, oh yeah. Um, but I know plenty of people with so many similar stories, you know. And and I I have similar stories from when I was younger, and I feel shame about them. So, it's really common. Yeah, we have to forgive ourselves and know that we did the right thing. I mean, Milo is or Max is thriving, and so is Benji. Right. right. So it's it's really good. One of the things you did so beautifully in the book is not only the way you told the stories of these fantastic dogs, that you connected it to the larger issues that are a problem. For example, when we learn about Tallulah, uh, you write, quote, backyard breeders are damaging for many reasons, one of which is that they tend to sell puppies at very young ages in order to maximize profits. Expand a little more on the backyard breeding. Well, I mean, f from from where I sit, which I mean, I'm, I'm no longer really on the front lines. Like I used to be, I'm not volunteering every week. I'm not in charge of, you know, 200 dogs like I used to be. But, um, what I, what I see is so much damn, I see shelters almost full of dogs from backyard breeders and backyard breeders are essentially people who have no, um, legitimate experience or knowledge of how to breed a dog. They're doing it solely for profit. Um, 
they and these are not commercial scale breeding operations like puppy mills, but these are people who um, really they just they want to make a quick buck and they're going to breed their female and they're going to sell these puppies as quickly as they can, get her pregnant again, sell puppies. And these the problem, there are a lot of problems with this. I mean, the puppies go way too young. They're often unhealthy. Um, but the bigger problem is that, I mean, genetically, a lot of these dogs are a total mess because these people don't care about the health of the dogs. They're just looking for the money. And an experienced, responsible breeder would put health first above everything else. And these people aren't doing that. So, I mean, you're getting dogs that are a genetic mess. Um, And that can be behavioral, that can be physical, that can be, you know, so many different things. Um, And there's, there's, there's actually examples of all of those things in this book. Um, there's a lot of examples of backyard breeding gone, gone horribly wrong. And the other thing that they will do is they'll, they'll go, Oh, you know what? I'm going to make this new dog. I'm going to make this new dog. And so I'm going to take my two and I'm going to breed them and I'm going to see what we get. And I mean, that's just, you know, it's a really, really (laughs) bad, irresponsible, arrogant idea. And the dogs suffer. And I mean, we've seen some unbelievable dogs come out of backyard breeding situations that were so genetically flawed and damaged that they could barely live, you know, and, um, and nobody, you know, and so what happens to those dogs? Those dogs get taken in by rescues, by people who want to save them, who in many cases can save them, but there's just always other people cleaning up the messes of these backyard breeders. And the problem is it's so difficult to regulate or, or stop, you know, um, really the only time something like that ever gets, um, shut down is if there's complaints from neighbors because of noise or, um, because they're, you know, in one case, I remember there was a, a house that was trying to breed French bulldogs, I think. And, and all of the dogs were living outside, you know, even in the winter. And so complaints oh were God. made and humane, you know, law enforcement came and, and things like that will put it on the radar. But, mo- you know, most, in most cases, it's almost impossible to regulate. Oh, so terrible. You do say in the book, quote, with firm but patient training and lots of love, they can usually learn to be normal, well-behaved dogs. But that's ones that don't have so many health issues. That's ones that don't have so many health issues. And and again, I mean, you know, I think one of the things about almost every dog in Forever Home is that there was a village. There was a village of people who were dedicated to helping and saving that dog. And there were enormous resources, you know, time, money, love um, that went into saving each one of these dogs. And for every one of them, there's who knows how many hundreds or thousands that don't have those resources and that don't make it, you know? And I think that's what's so heartbreaking because there just, there aren't enough resources to go around to, to help and to save all of the dogs that need it. Or, and so there's going to be, you know, Tallulah was, and she was a, woo, she was a tough little puppy. And, um, she's far as I know, she's fine and happy, Good. but you know, she was with the right people who gave her so much and continue to give her so much because behaviorally she was from a young age, she was a bit of a mess, you know? Um, and governor who's, who's in the, who's in the <laughs> book, he's doing great, but I mean, he is a genetic disaster, you know? And, and, and he needed surgeries and he need and these are sponsors that step in and pay for these things, you know, and just the generosity is immense, but for every one, like I said, there's probably, you know, 5,000 that don't get that. 
So heartbreaking. But again, we have to be happy for the one that does, which you write in the back of the book about the starfish, which I'll get to towards the end of the show. I thought that was so beautiful. Now, of course, not just because he's a pit bull, but Major (laughs) Walter Von Berger. I mean, the name itself. But this is what I find so ridiculous. This flippin' breed-specific legislation. Major Walter Von Berger was picked up as a stray in Mississippi, a part where they had this band, but somebody snuck him out and he ended up going on a transport and he got to an animal behavioralist who lost her beloved pit bull. This story I read to my husband, he goes, oh my God, that's you. And she got so depressed. All she did was sit on the couch. She stopped working. He looks over at me and blue and blue is like all wrapped up in me. And he's like, oh my gosh, but they didn't think they were ready. But anyway, they eventually adopted Major Walter Von Berger and they did change his name to that. I don't remember the original name. But thank goodness for those transports. Tell us a little bit about those. Transports are are amazing. And I, I just want to say that that behaviorist is actually a very good friend of mine. Oh, um, nice. And so I've, I've, I've known, I've known Walter personally. Um, and How's he, he doing? He's, he's an amazing cute. dog. He's doing, he's doing very well. Um, and yeah, obviously BSL is um, beyond ridiculous. I mean, and it's crazy that people have to sneak dogs, you know, like, like, you know, like it's wartime or something, and we're, um, <laughs> exactly. but it's it's still happening. And obviously, I'm very anti anti BSL. Um, you know what we're seeing here in the Northeast at this point? So many of our local shelters are pretty much empty. Um, not all of them by any means, but the numbers are way 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 down here. Um, at least they were for a while. And so, I mean, we see so many transport dogs um, coming up from the South and from Texas and areas that are just completely overcrowded everywhere. And, um, and it's, it's spectacular because um, I remember when, you know, 10 years ago or so, everybody was really grumbling about transport. Like, why are you bringing me these dogs? You know, we've got dogs here and, and I get that, but now we kind of don't have dogs here, you know, and these are, these dogs need, they need somewhere to go. They need help. These shelters are so overcrowded and it's wonderful. I mean, they're just the, the people, the networks, the time that they put into transferring dogs all over the country. Um, so we get transports up here daily, constantly, you know, that fill, um, our shelters here with adoptable, highly adoptable dogs, um, that would not have necessarily gotten a chance in the South. And, and people are aching to adopt dogs up here and there just aren't that many naturally available. So, I mean, I just think it's spectacular. And, um, the the people who, who devote so much time to running these transports are absolute angels. Oh yeah, completely. Now this I thought was interesting. It brought up another good point. You talk about Milo. He's a five-year-old male Husky Staffordshire Terrier, Malamute cattle dog, mystery dog. And this was such a good point you brought up. Quote, having worked in a shelter for more than 10 years, I can remember countless times when people came in or emailed all excited to meet a particular dog they had fallen in love with online or who looked like the dog they had as a kid, only to realize during the meet and greet that this dog was not a good fit for them. Yes, absolutely. And um, I'm sure it still happens, maybe even more so with the proliferation of of social media and different ways to, to see dogs online. You know, now you can see a dog in California that, that you, you know, desperately fall in love with and, and try to get it to you. And, um, and I know that there are um, people who adopt dogs that they've never met and it works out fine, but I got to tell you, <laughs> I'm not an advocate of that <laughs> at all. Um, but yeah, I used to, 
because I was, I was taking the photographs at the shelter and I was also running the volunteer program and, 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 you know, doing everything like volunteers do and taking care of the dogs and doing adoption, meet and greets and everything. And so many people would come in and they were just, I mean, they had seen this dog's picture on Pet Finder and it was their soulmate. They were a hundred percent sure that that dog was their soulmate. And to some extent that was on me because I had photographed that dog in a particular way to make it um, appealing, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and that's great. They're there and they're excited and that's a wonderful thing. And then I would bring out this dog and, and they were chalk and cheese and you could just see it, you know? And, and I could also see like how crestfallen these people were because they knew they didn't want to admit it, but they knew that this wasn't the right dog for them, but they, <laughs> they, their hopes had been so high. So that was a great opportunity. And I think, you know, a lot of shelter workers have so much more training now than, than we did then. But like, that was a great opportunity to say, you know, it's okay that this dog isn't a fit for you, but let's introduce you to so-and-so. And, and nine times out of 10, I mean, we could get, we could find a match. Um, so it's still, you know, it still works out to get people in the door, but I think, um, and I've had plenty of friends that they still fall in love, you know, with a photo online and, um, it's just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a way. It's a way to meet the dog, but hopefully you end up leaving with the, with the right dog because you don't want to ever force um, a situation. And I've done that too. I mean, I see photos of dogs, and I'm sure it, that we are absolutely destined to be together forever. And then in person is a different thing. So what you're seeing in that photograph is is you know hopefully. Um, a lot of that dog's personality, but you're also seeing the skill of the photographer. You're also seeing what they were able to capture at that moment. Um, and the real live thing might be very different. Oh yeah. I mean, and I've mentioned this before, but our first dog Bailey and I didn't get dogs. I was an adult cause my mom was afraid and she wouldn't let us. So I got oh, my yeah. first dog at 33 with my husband. He grew up with tons of dogs and cats and the whole thing. And when we got Bailey, uh, he was a pit mix. We got him about six months. He was amazing. And around one, I thought he needs a friend. So we let him pick out the friend. They brought out a couple different dogs and Bailey liked everyone. So he was happy. But then when he saw Bobo, who was our, became our Irish setter, German shepherd mix, stunning oh, wow. dog, he went insane. Like so happy, like oh. full body wag. And we're talking like 20, 25 feet away. He was already. Wow. So he was. And then Bobo came it. in and it was a love fest. They wrestled that night. That was like 12 noon. They wrestled that night till midnight. That's amazing. They're never going to stop. That's fabulous. Unfortunately, I mean, I think so many shelters, you can't actually bring your dog to meet, which is terrible. Really? See, they, they're like, you can't take a dog if you have one. You ha- They have to meet. I agree. I think it's just a matter of resources and liability, you know, and, um, but it is so important to have, to have your dog meet a prospective dog before you just bring them home. Surprise, you know. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. That's a quote by author Dean Coots, and I couldn't agree more. I want my wonderful dogs to live as long as possible, and what they eat plays a huge role in their health and longevity. Kibble is full of seed oils that wreak havoc on our dog's health. They damage their microbiome, which affects digestion, oral health, their skin and coat, and more. And that's why I feed my dog Benji Yumwoof. Their air-dried food is GMO-free and has an inflammation-reducing recipe with omega-3 and coconut oil. It's all the benefits of fresh food without the fridge, carbs, fillers, seed oils, and other inflammatory ingredients you see in other brands. 
Yum Wolf obsessively crafted a healthy, low-carb food with humanely raised USDA meat, eggs, and other non-GMO superfoods that my dog loves. Try the number one air-dried dog food for gut health for 50% off a trial of Yum Wolf. That's 50% off a trial of Yum Wolf. Go to www.yumwolf.com. That's www.yumwoof.com. You and your dog will be so glad you did. Does your family include a dog or a cat? Would you like to be better educated on how to advocate for their health naturally? Then why not check out all of the amazing resources on naturallyhealthypets.com? Dr. Judy Morgan is a trusted advisor and a regular guest here on the Dog Eared Podcast. She has over 38 years experience as an integrative veterinarian, acupuncturist, chiropractor, food therapist, author, speaker, podcast host, and owner of Dr. Judy Morgan's Naturally Healthy Pets. Dr. Judy's goal is to change the lives of pets by educating and empowering pet parents just like you in the use of natural healing therapies and minimizing the use of chemicals, vaccinations, and poor quality processed food. Head on over to naturallyhealthypets.com where you'll discover healthy product recommendations, comprehensive courses, the Naturally Healthy Pets podcast, informative blogs, upcoming events, and so much more. Again, that's naturallyhealthypets.com, the place to learn how to give your pet the vibrant life that they deserve. Now, this really pissed me off. So Sesame is beautiful. Oh, I love Sesame. Uh, age unknown male pit bull was in this dog fighting situation. And this, this kills me. Uh, quote, in a dog fighting case, the civil case determines custody of the dogs who are considered property. This is outrageous. So you're busted for dog fighting and then you get to decide if the dogs can get care or not. You have to sign off. What the? Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really messed up. And it happens pretty much every time with dog fighting cases. And so many of them sit. They sit. Um and oh, yeah, and I've I've been I guess fortunate um, to meet a lot of dog fighting survivors, and I mean you know these dogs are most of them are so broken and they're and they're so damaged and and the last thing that they need is um, you know to be sitting and waiting and and yeah the person the criminal is the one that ultimately can can release them and save them and it's just and and in a lot of cases I mean there will actually be a bargain made like okay you know what if you just release these dogs we will lessen your sentence or we will and that's messed up you know that's that's so messed up really um and that's i mean we we just have to start moving away from animals being property yes yeah yeah that just broke my heart but i'm glad to know that sesame did find a happy home i have to bring up this just for the name tt bananas (laughs) female pitbull agent no Vivian, who is on the cover and who melted my heart. And I love what you said about Vivian. You wrote, quote, Vivian is an example of a dog who was previously neglected, but also very loved. She was not abused, but lack of funds or knowledge or both led to her having a host of untreated life-threatening conditions. Vet care is prohibitively expensive for many animal owners. I thought that was so interesting. And 
I can't imagine. I mean, Blue needed both of his back knees done. That cost $8,000. Yeah. I wanted to include that because I think that's a new concept for some people. Not everything is black and white. You know, you can love a dog. You can care for a dog. And maybe you're not caring for it all the way. You know, maybe you're not providing everything. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I'm around so many different dogs. And I mean, my dogs live a pretty basic life as far as, you know, they don't get a ton of treats. They have pretty basic treats. They get basic vet care, you know, they're, um, but they get what they need. But I guess my interpretation of what they need may be different than somebody else's interpretation of what their dogs might need with gourmet treats and all of this. But this woman, Vivian was, Vivian was fostered and cared for by a very, very good friend of mine. And, um, it, you know, I think it was important to mention this dog was cared for. This dog was loved, but they could not afford the vet care for this dog. No matter, I mean, as, as broken as our healthcare system is in this country, um, for humans, if you, you know, Ultimately, if you have a life-threatening condition, you can go to a hospital and you can be treated. It doesn't mean you're not going to be billed for it, but you cannot do that for a dog. You cannot do that. And unless you have great credit and can then go in debt for thousands and thousands of dollars, you can't just take your dog in and have it treated. And so, I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you have a dog with a life-threatening condition and you have no money? There aren't a lot of options. And so thankfully, Vivian was brought and thankfully my friend was called who was the right person to call. Um, and you know, Viv, Viv passed away, um, several months ago, which was oh. sad, but she, I think, I mean, she, she kind of was, it was a miracle that she made it that long and she was such a happy, happy dog. And she lived out the last, gosh, I don't know, year of her life, you know, being so loved and, and so comfortable and so, um, living inside with my, my friend, Trisha, who is just, <laughs> Angel doesn't even begin to describe her as far as, um, saving animals, but, uh, she has the spectacular foster facility at her house, but oh, Vivian wow. was, I think the only dog that ever made it out of there and moved into the house with her and all of her cats and was, you know, sleeping on the sofa with her and just, she was allowed to be, you know, fully in their home with them because she was just such a remarkable dog. So wow, it ended well for her, but I certainly wish she was still around. Well, what do you recommend for people who really love their dogs, but can't pay for any, or not any, but pay for like a major medical issue? I, w I wish I had an answer. I mean, you know, I know that, you know, Petco and other places offer low cost um, shots and, um, routine maintenance and things like that. And there's lots of spay neuter clinics, but I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't know what to do if one of mine suddenly needs a $5,000 surgery. You know, it's, it, I know a lot of, a lot more people are getting pet insurance these days, but that's expensive too. And then, so, you know, it's ideally everybody who owns a dog is going to have $5,000 in an account just in case they need it. But, but that's not realistic. No. So, um, I don't have that. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I don't, you know, I don't know what the solution is. So I just wish there was, I wish there was more, I wish there were more flexibility, you know, options at, at veterinarians. And I know that they're running a business and they have high costs and I don't in any way vilify them. Um, my vet is the most amazing human on the planet and I adore her, but I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and it, it it's interesting because with blue, like we're making choices that are making his life more expensive, meaning we're not buying fancy toys. Don't worry. He has really bad skin allergies. Like he will chew on his paws all day oh, and itch yeah. and be uncomfortable. And we were doing the medication route. But then I find out all this stuff doing the show and it suppresses his immune system and it's not so great. And kibble is really not that great. And, you know, he should be on real food. And I'm like, okay, so I'm spending, you know, like hundred bucks a week on turkey Ooh. or all this stuff. It's really, he's very, he's like the most expensive dog, but I want him to live as long as possible. And because we can afford it, we don't go on vacations and I buy secondhand clothes. I mean, I'm not joking. Like we live really simply. This dog is everything to me, but I wouldn't blame someone if they're like, I can't do the other thing. So I I know that I'm privileged. You know what I mean? I don't want to act like, well, everyone should be feeding, you know, real food. It's like, well, what can you do? What can you afford? And then make, you know, decisions, right? And I, yeah, and those decisions are really hard. And I think that um, also, I mean, as far as food goes, I think there's so much, you know, misinformation out there. And it's hard for me to even know exactly what is the right thing to do for my dogs, you know, and um, one of mine is on super special diet, um, which, and it's kibble, but it's really pricey. So, you know, (laughs) not a hundred dollars a week, thankfully, but it's, it's, it's really tough to have to make decisions like that about a family member. Right. Um, and, but you know, just what you can afford, what is manageable is, is just so different for everyone. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing that stood out to me as well was that in the book, you know, I don't want people to think it's just all pit bulls and pit mixes. Of course, that's fine with me, but there's a lot of other types of dogs and they're all seem to be from puppy mills, right? So talk to us about this dichotomy of you've got like every other breed, it seems to be from a puppy mill. And then you've got these pitties that (laughs) are found in fighting rings, which is so sad because that's not where they want to be. No, no, certainly not. No dog wants to be a fought. I, I mean, um, yeah. So one thing about about the about the dichotomy. I mean, certainly up here in the Northeast, and I know it's different in the South. I very different. You know, when you're in North Carolina or Texas, and North Carolina is where I'm from, and one of my dogs is from there. But um, and they've got tons of hounds and beagles and labs and and such such variety up here. Primarily, we have pits in in the shelters, not counting the transports. Um, and so that's what, uh, you know, a lot of the subjects in the book are pits also, because there are so many in shelters and so many without homes, they end up being, I think, um, there, there's just so many stories and there's so many, so many good and bad stories because there are so many that need homes. The puppy mills, which, um, so the, that group that I worked with is in Pennsylvania where so many of the puppy mills are, um, Amish puppy mills. And I was in the heart of Amish country, you know, buggies everywhere and, and the whole, the whole thing. And, um, uh, and I mean, they're, you know, they do breed some larger dogs, but primarily, you know, they are breeding small dogs for a number of reasons. They take up less space. Um, people want them. You can get, you can fit, you know, six puppies in a cage with a small breed, whereas with a husky, you can't. And there is actually a husky in the book that was a puppy mill dog. So they do breed larger dogs, but the bulk of what I see personally is, is smaller dogs and all kinds of, you know, mixing this with that, just so long as it's small and fluffy, you know, we'll be able to unload it. And then the Cavalier, the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel that's in the book, Winnie, who's one of my absolute favorites because I, I have a Cavalier, but 
Um, they are super popular in puppy mills because they are a super popular dog right now. So whatever people want, whatever people are buying, I imagine Frenchies, who are the number one, I guess, breed in America. Yeah, I've been seeing that. Yeah, that puppy mills are overrun breeding Frenchies right now. Um, and obviously those, for anyone out there who does not know about puppy mills, they are pure evil. And the best way to ever avoid buying a puppy mill dog is to never buy a dog from a pet store, to never buy a dog online, to never buy a dog that you can't go and meet that person and meet the dog's parents and see the property and be part of the family. Um, it's, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, these people just, just kind of like the dairy industry, they put up beautiful pictures online of this bucolic farm, you know, where these dogs come from. And maybe that is their farm, but that's not how the dogs live. And, and, the, and the really bizarre, I don't think the bizarre, horrible thing about puppy mills is that they're really, for the most part, protected by law right now, um, which is something that, you know, we're all working to change as well. Commercial breeding facilities are still largely protected by law. And with the Amish farms, it's really tough, you know, to get into those properties and regulate them in any way. Um, and just the suffering is so immense. So, you know, the best way for puppy mills to go away is for people to stop buying the dogs. Exactly. You know, I have to thank my husband because this was 23 years ago and we were finally living in a place where we could get a dog and I'd never had one. I was just so excited. We were, we're not mall people, but we just happened to be, we had just moved here. We're in New England and, and we needed some stuff. And so we went to the mall and we passed a pet store and I see this little beagle puppy. It's the cutest oh. thing I've ever seen. And I hold it. I'm like, oh, honey. And he goes, nope, put the puppy down. Tomorrow we'll go to the shelter. And we right, did. And, and we got Bailey, our pit mix. But that, but it was the like, thing is, it's baby. totally normal. I mean, that's the thing. That's what, that's what these stores count on. And I mean, as we move along, fewer and fewer, you know, dogs are fewer and fewer stores are selling dogs, which is what we want. I mean, we we all petitioned a local store here who was selling dogs to stop, and they ah. did. Um, and but it, I can't pass pass by a puppy ah. in a window. Okay, sorry, you're hearing some barking. Oh no, this on dog ear. We um, don't edit it. You know, of course, you're going to see a puppy in the window and you're going to hold it and you're going to also think this dog needs me. This dog needs me to save yeah. it. And in a way, it kind of does. But then you're just you're perpetuating the entire industry. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's but it's so hard to think, well, no, I'm just going to leave this dog. And I, you know, making a sacrifice, basically, this dog is going to be a sacrifice to to help end this industry. That's a tough thing to think. And I've met so many people who have told me that they quote rescued their dog from a pet store. And I get it, but right. you're not, you know, you're just no. making a space for more puppies. And exactly. My puppies loud. You know, when we went to the shelter and I, every dog was barking and Bailey had just, uh, he had been hit by a car and he was in the back and had a cone on his head. And they said, this dog is, might need an expensive surgery. Well, we were living for free uh, because my in-laws had an, I mean, yeah, my in-laws had an in-law apartment that we were living nice. in. So we had no rent. I'm like, I'm taking this dog. Like I fell in love with him <laughs> the second. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know what breed he was. I didn't know that much. And he was a border terrier uh, pit mix. So he looked like something wow. about Harry, but big. But he's just the most lovable baby. Awesome. I miss him so much. That's a great he, mix. That's a great he mix. He, yeah, he's, he was gorgeous. He died in 2013. People should follow mm. me on my uh, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter because I've been posting pictures of Bailey and Boba, who I mentioned, my uh, setter shepherd mix, um, at least Davis MPH. 
I also wanted to mention that, you know, I didn't, I know puppy mills are horrific, but you wrote right in the book that Minnie had no idea what beds, toys, or grass were. Yes. I don't think people know how deprived they are. They are so deprived. These are dogs who live their entire life in a wire cage, usually stacked on top of other wire cages. So every time they poop, or pee, it's just going to fall down onto the other dogs below them. Their puppies um, are going to be born in that, you know, the mothers particularly are going to live their whole lives in that cage, producing litter after litter after litter after litter, having their puppies taken away at a young age, being sold, the process going on and on until they are no longer producing. And then, to be quite honest, they're either killed or in case of the lucky ones, when the farmer is compassionate enough to dump them. Um, you know, sometimes they get dumped at a vet or just dropped off at a rescue. And that's the best possible scenario. Um, when a lot of these rescues are really trying to forge relationships with these farmers so that they will give them their dogs rather than shooting them, you know, but these dogs don't touch grass. They don't have any human contact. They have no comforts. Um, so when you meet a dog that has just come from a mill, they are totally shot down. They're virtually catatonic. And it takes a long time, you know, for them to to come around. I mean, I, I just talked to Winnie's mom. So sorry about the barking. Um, I just talked to Winnie's mom a couple weeks ago, and she was telling me how wonderful she's doing. Um but it, you know, it took about a year for her to even um, start doing normal things. Right. Oh, okay. I can bet. Should I, I grab her? I'd like to see her, actually. Okay. <laughs> Let me see your baby. Okay. Oh, you guys, so cute. So this is Rose. My other one I can't pick up because he's huge. But, I always um, wanted a King Charles. They're so beautiful. Oh, my God. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. Are you going to offer her, huh? Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. The most loving creatures. Oh, I'm sure. Every dog in this book is precious. Every story is fantastic. <laughs> I love that bark. That's great. Anyway, before we go, two things. And I want people to get the book so they can read about Sisu. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not even going to oh. share that story. <laughs> it's so fantastic. And then at the end of the book, I love this. It's this wonderful story about a starfish. And there's a girl and she's picking up the starfish and there's a man who's like, why are you doing that? There's miles and miles of beach and so many starfish and uh, you can't, you cannot, you can't possibly make a difference. And she basically goes on to say, well, it made a difference for that one. Like she exactly. So the work you've done is phenomenal. Uh, you're going to be back many, many more times. I hope I could have conversations I hope with so. you for, for, oh my gosh. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I've so enjoyed this. Is there anything we didn't touch on? that you were hoping we did in this interview this and again you'll be back many times. uh no this was wonderful thank you i mean i um forever home was i think my 12th book so oh, wow. um and there are there are more there are more in the works so i would definitely love oh. to come back oh yeah you should yeah you know we should do because i've been wanting to do a second show a week so oh <laughs> wow be... <laughs> trayer spot no really because you know <laughs> so much but anyway we'll talk but you're fantastic tell us all the ways we can find you and all your wonderful work yes definitely um trayerscott.com is my website please follow me on instagram at trayerscott and uh those are my two primary i guess channels of communication um and yeah <laughs> 
Now I'm going to spell your name. It's T-R-A-E-R and then yes. Scott S-C-O-T-T. I don't usually give my uh, handle in the middle of the show, but I was so excited about Bobo and Bailey. Oh, I miss them so much. Uh, Bobo passed in um, 2016. Oh. Yeah, they were, we call them the good boys, the original the good, boys. good boys. And these guys are the second set of good boys, um, <laughs> but we love them all. Anyway, do follow me so you can see all the good boys at Lisa Davis MPH, Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. Also, I started a Facebook page for Dog Eared with Lisa Davis. And just keep coming back. And while you're here, check out Health Power. All right, everybody, keep coming back to Dog Eared. <laughs>